I'm going to read from God's Word this morning, and the first part we're going to read is from the book of Psalms, from Psalm number 63. These words are, some of them will be familiar to us, but they are words of just love and approach to God. So let's read together Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary. I have beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live And in your name, I will lift my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the riches of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you, and your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Amen. Then we read from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3 and verse 14, these words, beautiful words. For this reason, says Paul, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that his love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you to God for his word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we come to meditate on your word, to spend time with it. We pray that it would be real for us, not just that we would learn, not just that we would think, but that we would know your presence, that we would know your love, that we would know you touching our lives and transforming us by your spirit. Amen. Psalm 63 
I want to have a, a look at it this morning. And um, let me start just with a little bit of information which might help you when you're reading Psalms. The Psalms, if you look at them in, in your Bibles, it, it's one of the limitations. We don't have a pew Bible, but um, can I encourage you to bring a Bible with you when you come to church? It's quite good to be able to, to thumb through and check. One of the reasons that congregations should have Bibles is so they can check that the minister's not making stuff up. You can have a look for yourself as we go through. One of the things you will find in the book of Psalms, at the top of every Psalm, under the number, is a little bit of narrative under most of them that, that gives you a bit of setting. Now, these words were put in many centuries sometimes after the psalm itself was written, although they were put in still thousands or a couple of thousands of years ago in most of the cases. And what they offer to us is a little bit of background, a little bit of setting for the psalm. It might be when the psalm was written. It might be what was going on, who wrote it. Sometimes we're not quite sure what it means. It simply says, for the singers or something like that, so we don't, we don't know. Um, and sometimes the suspicion is that whoever's written it has been sort of looking at the psalm and, and connecting it with a Bible story because we're not quite sure whether they're telling us that's where it's come from or, or simply this reminds me of. So for instance, this one, Psalm 63 says, a psalm of David. Now that might mean a psalm by David, but it might be a psalm about David or it might be a psalm that is in the theme of David. We don't quite know what it means. And then it gives a setting when he was in the desert of Judah. Now, in the book of, of Samuel, first and second Samuel, there are two occasions where David is in the wilderness. The first is when he is a very young man, and just after he's killed Goliath, he gets recruited by Saul to be a harpist. And Saul, by this stage, is getting paranoid and mad and jealous. And at one point, he throws a spear at David, and David has to run away from the palace, and he is in hiding from Saul in the desert of Judah. It probably doesn't refer to that episode, this heading, because David wasn't the king at that point, and the psalm will later on go to talk about the king. So it probably refers to a second time that David found himself in, in Judah. And it was nearer the end of his life when he was the king, only there was a rebellion. His son Absalom led an army against him. And it was one of the darkest times in David's life. His son was trying to kill him. And so he had to flee the palace and the capital city and, and hide in the Judean wilderness for a time. It was a time of danger, but also a time of heartbreak. His family was falling apart. His sons were rebelling against him. And it had all started when he'd committed adultery. And so there was a whole knock-on of a dark, dark time for King David. And that, this heading suggests, is the background to this psalm. Now, we may not have had children try to kill us, or not too often anyway, um, but we all know what it is to have a wilderness experience. A time when life just isn't going right. A time when we feel detached when God perhaps seems far away. In the language of this psalm, a time where it is dry, spiritually dry. You know what I mean? Can you connect that with your own experience? Maybe that's where you are just now. Maybe that's where you've been through these COVID times. But all of us can connect a time. And David begins this psalm by saying this, 
You, God, are my God. You, God, are my God, and I thirst for you. I long for you. The psalm just cuts straight to it. What David is saying in the wilderness here is, I need you, and I need you not just to be theoretical, a God out there who I can sort of pray to vaguely, but I need you to be mine. I need you to be with me. I need to know. I need to, I just am so hungry for having that nearness to you experience. I want you. You see, there is two senses that we are God's children. There is a sense that every human being is God's child. We are, we are made in the image of God. The Ecclesiastes says he's put eternity in our hearts. We have a God-shaped hole in our lives. But that's not quite what this is talking about, where he says, you, God, are my God. It's referring to something else, something that came out of Israel's special relationship with God. You see, when Abraham was called to, to lead a new people, a people of faith, God said this to him in Genesis, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. You are mine, says God. You are my special people. I want a relationship with you. I want to be able to talk to you. I want you to be people that are, have hearts for me. And that's what David is talking about. Remember, David was called one time in the book of Samuel, a man after God's own heart, a man who loved him with all his heart and all his soul. And so I guess as David begins to pray these words, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. He's thinking back to times where he's known God. He's really known God in his life. And if you're, if you're a believer, you can always look back at times where however far you've wandered, you see, that's when I was there. That's when I knew God's presence. That's the place I was when I just knew I was loved beyond all doubt. And that's what, what, what David is referring to at this point. I need that again, he's saying. Whatever else is going on in my life right now, however much I've got troubles and families and kingdoms to worry about, and will I survive in this desert, however much else is going on in my life, I need that relationship restored yet again. Remember, he'd started off not as a king, but as a shepherd boy, wandering in the hills, trusting God that he'd be there when the bear came or the lion came writing probably very simple songs to the Lord who was like his shepherd that he played on his harp. And it was that simple trust that had enabled him when he, when, he, when he went to the Israelite army just as a little boy and he watched the big man making all the people scared to simply say with incredulity, I know God and he's powerful and that big giant's a bully and, 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 and it all started there. And now it's almost as if David is sitting there and he's an older man now and there's all the politics of the palace and the, the temptations of the world and the harem of women he's got and all the sons and all the, all the relationships and all the trappings. And he suddenly realizes in that desert place the distance, how far he's got from that simple love of God and he wants it again. I, I don't know what your experience is and I, I, I'm always slightly nervous about talking about a particular experience of God because 
we have all found God in different ways. Some of us have had dramatic conversions. Many of us have sort of slowly grown up with the presence of the Lord. For me, I, I can say this, I went through Sunday school and I'm very grateful for having gone through Sunday school and learned lots of stuff about the Bible, but it wasn't until I was about 13 or 14 and people started talking about a relationship with God, having new leaders in a Bible class where there just was something that wasn't just about learning stuff and believing stuff, it, it, it was actually real and wanting that. Time and time again in, in, in life as it's got complicated, there's been points of coming back and saying, I need to walk with you again. I just need to know that you're there for me right now. I, I, I need to know you, Father. I need to know that relationship. And God moves literally heaven and earth to have that. That's why his son came. Jesus came to do all sorts of things. He came that we might have a world that had justice in it. He came that the whole of creation might be redeemed. But he came at one very simple level, that God might have a relationship with us, that all that stood in the way might be ripped apart, that all the sin and the guilt might be taken on the cross, that the temple veil would be wrought in two, that we could come into the presence of God and simply know him and be known by him. And that is at the heart of the gospel itself. Now, as a congregation, in the weeks that come, in the months that come, there are all sorts of priorities that we will have, and they are good ones. We have to reimagine the church beyond COVID. We have to be a church that finds ways of reaching the young and caring for the old. We have to be a church that is, is looking at how we bring justice into the world around us. We're going to be challenged by the need to care for the creation that God has given us and speak out about environmental ethics. And all of these things are important. But something is very basic about saying this. We need to walk with God. Together and individually. And whatever else we're doing we're a place that simply invites people to come and know the living God in their hearts and in their minds, to know his love. The book of Revelation, the spirit of Jesus addresses the churches and he points out things that are wrong in them and things that are good about them. And when he comes to the church in Ephesus, there is much that's positive to say about that church, but there's also a stark warning. Spirit says to the church, you have persevered and endured hardships for my name. You've not grown weary, but I hold this against you. You have forgotten the love you had at first. You know, when you've been married a number of years, sometimes it's, it's good to remember where it started. That's why we celebrate anniversaries, by the way. Guys, anniversaries aren't a trap. Sometimes it feels like that way. They're a test, aren't they? Did you remember? But rather, it's an invitation, isn't it? To think after five years of marriage or 10 years of marriage or 27 years of marriage or how many it's been, where did it start? Two people that loved one another and wanted to be together. And everything else that came from that is detail. Come back to that place of first love. That's what our hymns are all about. We get uptight about fast hymns, slow hymns, like it, don't like it, sing it, don't sing it. What is it? They're love songs. Jesus' love is very wonderful. So high, I can't get over it. So wide, 
I can't get around it. It's so deep, I can't get under it. And you can see this in this psalm, and I, I'm going to really encourage you to go home and just read Psalm 63. Let it be your prayer to God. The second verse, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Now, here's the interesting thing. Wherever David is right now, he's not in the sanctuary. He's in the wilderness. He's been driven out of Jerusalem, and yet he looks back and he remembers. I can't go into the sanctuary just now, he says. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> We've been there in a, just a few months ago. I, I can't get into church. It's closed. It's shut. I'm just left watching pictures of it. But I have seen you there. It's not just that David is saying, oh, I, I've been driven out of Jerusalem. I'd like to go back to Jerusalem. I wish it was back in my palace, and I wish it was back with my pals, and I wish all those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He truly does all those things. But he looks back, and he says, I remember when I was in the presence of the Lord, and I saw his power and his glory. And he would go on to say, I saw his love too. I remember that. And if you're a Christian, you can always look back and say, I remember that. And, but of course, he doesn't just say, I remember it. He says, I thirst for it. I want it again. That's why I'm praying here. And yet, the very buildings, the places that we have experienced God can so often become a problem. I love the little story about a wee boy that's brought to church by his granny for the first time. And you know, you get those wee boys, maybe you've got one of those wee boys that just keeps asking questions. What's that? What's that about? Why are you doing that? And so the wee boy's coming into church and he's looking around and he's asking all these questions and the first thing he sees is a cross and he says, what's that about? Why do you do that? What's, what's the cross about? Oh, says, 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 says his, his grandparents, that's to remind us that Jesus died for us, that he loved us so much that he died for us. And then he looks around and he sees a font and he says, what, what's that about? Well, that's to remind us that we've been baptized into Jesus and, uh, and he, he loves us, and even the children he loves. And then he sees the communion table. What's that about? What's that for? Well, that's to remind us that Jesus gave his life for us, his body and his blood on the cross, and it's to remind us that we share the bread together. And then the wee boy looks at the war memorial and he says, what's that about? And his grandpa says, that's to remind us of all the people that died in the services. The wee boy says, morning or evening services? Now, a bit of a risky joke, but it, it, it reminds us of something that's very true. And if you're, particularly if you're an office bearer or a leader in the church, you'll know what I'm talking about. We love our services and we love our service of God and we love all our church things. And we often give sacrificially of ourselves to that, whether it's Sunday school or BB or Guild or whatever we're involved in. But it is possible in that service to die spiritually. So it becomes about all the things I do. Somehow God must love me because of all the things I do and this is what I do. I spend all my time doing this, coming to the meetings, going to the meetings, going to the meetings. And then people say, well, when did you last spend some time with God? Oh, I don't have time to do that. I'm too busy going to the meeting. You see what happens? It is always the danger of the Christian religion that the religious bits and the administrative bits and the stuff gets in the way of the basic thing, which is that relationship, that walk with God, the Lord Jesus Christ. David looks back and he says, I've seen you in your sanctuary. 
I'm remembering that when I gathered with God's people in prayer, you were there. Let us pray that we can create a church where that is what is said. Not, oh, they had an efficient system and a wonderful mission program. They did all these wonderful things in the community. But they can actually see, when we came and gathered together, God was there. It's interesting that um, the Bible is this love-hate relationship with buildings. On one hand, the temple is a huge problem. and On the other hand, it's a huge blessing. And one of the things we have had to learn in these days is that the building isn't important. We kept saying that, but it really isn't. It's that walk with the Lord Jesus. Uh, and yet those places that we meet together are important. Hebrews says, do not give up the habit of meeting together as some are doing. And I think in, in, particularly in, in these days, one of the things we're going to have to say as a congregation is that meeting together, we have realized how important it is. Worshiping together. Because it's been hard on our own, trying to maintain that walk with the Lord. We need to be together, and in these days, we need to find ways of doing that again. I see you in your sanctuary, says David. And actually, the sanctuary at this stage wasn't a building anyway. There wasn't a temple. David didn't build a temple. That was his son. It was a tent. There's one outside. Colin's got it as a gazebo. You know, it's as if David said, I, I remember when I was under the gazebo with the people of the Lord and the presence of the Lord was there. It's not about the building. It's about that sense as we worship together. And here's David in his wilderness saying, that, that's when I knew God's presence and remember it. I want it. I want it again. That thirst for the living God. And I love what he says next in verse three. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I remember, as I think of your presence, a sense of love. It wasn't that I went to church and I, I sort of remembered that God was holy and up there and I was scared. I just remember being loved. Loved by the people of God, yes, but loved by Him. Loved by Him. And it's so liberating because what He says here is that love is the most important thing in my life. Yeah, I have got lots of other stuff. I've had lots of other stuff. And he's the king. Of course, he's had every possession that's material, every palace, every luxury. He's had it all. But what he's seeing is, my love for God isn't about the stuff that God gives me, the gifts that God gives me, the comforts that God gives me. Yeah, I'm grateful for all those things, but his love is the most important thing. You know, parents, you know that, don't you? You want your children to know that they love you. And because you love them, you give them all sorts of stuff. But you do not want them to have a cupboard love that says, I know you love me because you give me things. So much of our life is transactional like that. I respect you. I love you. I value you because you give me things. Because you give me what I need. What happens when you can't? What happens when you take them away? That's what the whole of the book of Job is about. God says, look at Job, he loves me. And Satan says in that picture language, well, you take all the stuff you give him away and he'll stop loving you. He just loves you for the stuff he's given you. He blesses you because you've given him a good life. And the book of Job is how a man lost it all but kept the sense that God loved him. David's lost it all. And he's not even saying, give me it back, give me my palace back. 
give me my children back, because when he gets back into Jerusalem, he'll be mourning, because the only way he gets back is he defeats his son Absalom, he dies on the battlefield, and he cries. But knowing I'm loved by God and his, if I have that, nothing can take it away. I can have enemies, my health can fail, all these things can go wrong, but nothing will ever take that away from me, nothing at all. It's not dependent on circumstances. And that is what real Christian faith is. It's not about I come to the gods and I pray in order that I might have the stuff. That's religion. It's transactional. It's I know I am loved. It doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's great that we give God thanks for all that he's given us, all the wonderful things, all the blessings in life. We should be a thankful and a grateful people but that love, that relationship is the starting point. Because your love is better than anything else in life, my lips will glorify you. I will sing your praises even in the desert when I've lost everything. You know, the greatest gift that God gives us is himself. Now, you might well be saying, but, but wait a minute, isn't the Christian hope that we have eternal life? God so loved the world that he sent his son in order that I might have eternal life. Surely that's what it's about. It's actually about having life, and it's having long life, and it's having life that goes on forever. That's God's great gift to me. Well, yes, it is, but what is eternal life? It's interesting, in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us what eternal life is. He says, eternal life is this, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And here's the point. Eternal life isn't just the life that we enjoy going on forever. What Jesus is saying is life is this. It is to have a relationship with God in Jesus Christ that is so strong that nothing, not even death, will ever take it away from us. I'm always struck by the verses we read often at funerals from John 14, my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I should have told you. Or in the old version, the many mansions. And people find that very comforting. And I don't know about you, but my mind when I, when I think of that goes to those many mansions. And I, I think about spending eternity in a beautiful place, in a, in a fantastic hotel, you know, with every comfort. It'd be really great, lots to do. And maybe I think about the people I'll meet in those big rooms and the parties we can have and, and how it'd be great to see folk again that I, I've missed and lost. Now, I don't want to take away any of that from you. That's all promised. But do you know something? In my father's house, think about this for a minute. If I say to you, I'm going to my father's house, I'm not saying to you, I'm going to my father's house because it's a really nice house. Beautiful house. It's a house I, I love being in. It's got lots of food in it and it's got lots of things in it. Nor am I saying, I'm going to my father's house because it's a big house and I'm going to meet all my cousins there and I'm going to see all my friends there. I'm telling you I'm going to my father's house because I want to see my dad. Do you see what the Christian hope is? Yeah, we will have eternal life that goes on forever. Yes, there will be that great communion of saints. Yes, in the resurrection that's to come, we will see a new world and we will be together again. But more than that, we will know the Lord. 
We will know the Lord Jesus. He will fill every aspect of our lives. And that's better than life. Reading right to the end of the book of Revelation, it says simply that, that they won't need any light because the Lord God will be there with them, just like Adam and Eve walking in the garden of the Lord. That is the Christian hope. Then David says, on my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Now, that shadow of the watches of the night is, I suspect, a picture of the dark times. You know when things are not going well for you, the time that you feel the lowest is, is that low time in the middle of the night, isn't it, when you wake and it's three in the morning? You woke in at that point and wondered what your life is about. You woke in at that point and your fears are overwhelming you. In, in the morning, they might seem much better, but that dark point. And here is what David says, when I reach that dark point, I think of you. So basic, I know I'm loved. And that will see me through the darkness that comes. I sing in the shadow of your wings. You fill me. You hold me. And verse 8, I just simply love. I cling to you. And, and, and the word for, for, for clinging there is, is, is I stay really close. I'm doing everything I can. It's like the child who suddenly realizes how much they love mom. And they, they just, you, you've had that when you've had a toddler. You know, they, they, they just sort of cling to the the leg, the whole time they won't leave you. I cling to you. I cling to you, says David. I'm reaching out. I just want to be with you. But he then says, your right hand upholds me. And I, I, that image is, is so powerful because sometimes we feel we're clinging on to God. We're holding on to God. What the psalm says is no the bottom line is that God is holding you. You know, you've taken a small child across a road and they're holding your hand and they're holding on for dear life. But the bottom line is they think that that's what's important to hold your hand very tight. But you know as the adult, actually, it doesn't matter if they begin to let go of your hand because you're holding it. And you won't let them go. and You will see them safely across. And you won't let them out of your sight. And there's a part of this psalm where, yes, the psalmist is thinking, I'm far from God and I want to come close. But the promise of the psalm is also this. I said, I am your God. I gave my son's life for you. I called you my child before you were born. And I am not going to let you go. No matter how far you wander, no matter how far you think you are, I am not going to let you go. And that is the assurance, the blessed assurance that the psalm offers us. Amen.